0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music,
0: politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. This is The New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker.
3: This is The New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. In 2002, The New Yorker first published a short story by Tessa Hadley. Titled Lost and Found, the story described a friendship between two women who had been close since childhood. Hadley's fiction is often consumed with relationships at this scale, tight dramas close to home. But within these relationships, she captures an extraordinary depth and complexity of emotion. The New Yorker recently published its 30th story from Tessa Hadley. That's more than any other fiction writer in recent times. She spoke recently with our fiction editor, Deborah Treisman.
0: So I want to um, talk to you about your new story collection, After the Funeral, which I think is your 12th book of fiction. But before we... Before we launch on that, let's um, go back to your first, Accidents in the Home, which was published in mm. 2002. And a lot has been made of the fact that you you published your first book in your 40s. So what happened in the years before that, before Accidents in the Home? Mm. Uh,
2: lots of writing and failing, lots of trying to do it and and getting it really wrong. It wasn't it wasn't like a slow, gradual build-up. And then then I started writing something that seemed truthful and okay. It was like um, – it's not like falling off a cliff. It's the opposite. It was like I was under the cliff and just treading water and not getting anywhere. And then I don't know quite what happened in my 40s that made <laughs> that the, – the, the connection flowing down from my brain, down my arm, into the keyboard – I might have even still been the typewriter at that point, but I don't know what quite happened to get that right.
0: When In those years when you're writing and you feel you're failing, um, how are you, at what point are you assessing something as a failure? <sighs> it,
2: there's a lot of self-deception in writing, always. I mean, <laughs> So I, so I would be writing a novel that I hoped would work, And I would have a horrible feeling it was wrong. But then I still have a horrible feeling it's (laughs) wrong quite a lot when I'm doing it. So then I would tell myself, that's probably just that silly, horrible feeling. And it might be all right, really. And I would get to the end of it. And I would have this sort of hope against hope. I, I sort of think maybe I was just a late developer. And I was trying to write other people's novels for all that time. And it Getting it right eventually, in as far as one ever is sure of getting it right, felt like wandering around in other people's wildernesses and then coming home, putting a key in the door, opening the door, walking into your own house, recognising the rooms of your house, thinking this is where I live and, and this is where my writing lives. And that's what it did feel like. It felt like. I know what I think about this. I'm not faking
0: it anymore. But so what kept you going through the years when you did feel you were faking it? Why why not give up at that yeah.
2: point? A sort of a just a, the strangest insanity, really. Nothing good, nothing <laughs> virtuous like perseverance or strength or will. So that desire, so awful. It wasn't nice. It was so awful that I sort of almost felt... I wasn't properly alive unless I could write, which is being absurd, lunatic, but that was what it was. And so each time I would fail and I'd think, that's it, do something else, be a nurse, you know, or mm-hmm. love being a housewife, uh, whatever. And then I'd think, oh, but, but what if I wrote that book? That book would be good. Surely that book would work and I would start again.
0: Well, you know what impresses me over and over in your writing is the understanding that you have of your character's emotional and psychological lives. And I often have that sort of Alexander Popian feeling, you know, that what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed, where I've had this feeling, never put it into words, um, and there it is on your page. So I wonder, you know, I wonder often how you get so deeply inside your character's and are able to both know what feelings they're having <laughs> and mm. to express them with such clarity. Uh, I I mean I would think it
2: relates a little bit to to fantasy and to to being very impressionable and I can remember as a very little girl I had we were quite odd i had there were three friends and we just played out fantasy games every day in the playground and if we came to each other's houses and they would they would be like acting we would be you know the governess with the naughty children or the kidnapped by pirates or or um, we were three women who lived, this was one of, some of them were long running. They were kind of soaps rather than short stories. You know, we, would, we, would, we were three women who inexplicably, with no men involved, had children, all named, <laughs> all ages and everything. And we lived on an island and we had to row to get shopping and things. And all of, all of us had personalities that were not our actual personalities. <laughs> so, yeah, writing draws on empathetic, imaginative Faculties which feed into fantasy and then they feed in in a more ordered and disciplined way into fictions and paintings and films and so on.
3: The writer Tessa Hadley speaking with Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. More to come,
0: WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. Well, I'm thinking now about um a specific story that is in the collection. It's the last one in the collection called coda. Um, yeah which very much takes three characters, i suppose two two main characters um, at a specific enclosed time in their lives and uh, mm. and sees what happens in that in these few weeks um. Yes. And I think you were going to read a short passage from this story. So maybe we'll do that now. I'd love to.
2: It was three o'clock on a November's afternoon, and I hadn't turned on the light. Already the air outside seemed blue with evening. The wilted shrubs in the front gardens and the double row of parked cars were desolate, shrouded in cold. I thought at first that there was no one out there. I treasured these passages of astringent solitude stolen from my day. Then I saw that I wasn't alone after all. A woman was standing beside the wheelie bins in the paved front area next door smoking a cigarette. I hadn't noticed her at first because she stood almost directly below me. I was looking down now at the top of her head into the thick mass of her black hair. Her back was more or less turned to me. She couldn't possibly have seen me, and I'm sure I'd have been invisible to her anyway, even if she'd chosen to look up behind her. The window panes would only have reflected darkness. Nonetheless, I took a step away from the window, which was steaming up from my breath on the cold glass. This woman's character seemed strongly expressed in her physical presence, with her shoulders tensed and her head held back defiantly as if she expected to be challenged. She flaunted her cigarette, wrist angled coquettishly, turning her face away to blow out smoke. Her black coat with its fake fur collar was shrugged on against the cold. Beneath it, she had on a white housecoat like a nurse's uniform, which made me think she must be some sort of carer for the old man next door. We didn't know him very well. We'd spoken to his grown-up sons going in and out. I'd offered to do shopping for him, but they said they could manage. I guessed that this carer was pent up like me, bracing herself for a return to the daily perpetual work of kindness. She sucked on that cigarette thirstily, holding her right elbow in her left hand, left arm clasped tightly against her body. When she'd finished... She ground out the cigarette end under her heel. Before she went inside, she cast one quick look up at our window, which made me start back again. I was sure she couldn't have seen me, but she might have had an animal intuition that she was being watched. And as she punched the buttons on the key safe before unlocking the door and disappearing into the house, I had time to see that she was much younger than me, but not young, 40 perhaps with something faded or hardened in her smudged, brash, sultry looks. Snub nose, full mouth, luxuriant, thick lashes, scarred, bad skin. With her stocky build and dark colouring, she might have been Spanish or Portuguese. Margot wouldn't have considered this woman in the least pretty or sexy. She'd have said that she was coarse. I can see how some people might find her attractive... Her judgment on such matters was always inflexible with that little twist of distaste in her face behind the show of concession and self-doubt. What were you doing in the spare room, she asked when I went downstairs. I went to the loo, I said. I went to look out of the window. Anything happening out on Desolation Row? Nothing, no, no one.
0: So there's so there's so much in that scene. How did how did this scene come about? You know, you had you had in place this 92-year-old mother and the middle-aged mm. or late middle-aged daughter coming to live with her in the pandemic. You had them both in a house. Mm. You had their complicated relationship, but then you needed another element. Something to throw yes, it I off. Yes, I needed
2: another element. Yeah. Yes. I, and 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 I think I and I so a physique fell into place, and often it's that it's and it, it was it's based on somebody who has no actual relationship to that character in that story. It was just a woman who used to wait at the school gate years ago and had kids who played with my kids, and it was when I got her physique, and actually she was Maltese. She was Maltese, so which is what this Teresa turns out to be later on in the story. It, it was that was my key. The physique somehow precipitates something in the story between these rather English mother and daughter, the elegant sort of charming louche mother and the uptight daughter. I, I sort of needed something brasher to to make the triangle flow and and break up the the stasis between the the two who know each other so well after a long
0: life in mm-hmm. close relation. And it becomes a very strange sort of love triangle <laughs> in, mm. the, in the end. It does. Um, so a lot of your fiction, um, like this story, involves families, relationships, marriages, and I've seen it described in, in various places as domestic fiction. And I, I personally take a little exception to that term because huh. it, it's really aimed almost always at at female writers and very rarely Mm. at men who also write about marriage and families I've never heard Knausgaard called domestic (laughs) fiction (laughs) No, exactly
2: You know, he writes all about that stuff
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I mean ultimately Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew is domestic fiction if you want to see it that way and and William Trevor, John Updike so many people Um, so I'm wondering how you feel about being classified in that way a bit resigned because yes it's
2: it's familiar and and uh, th- all everything you've just said it tends to have a little bit of um condescension in it but it's a sort of ah uh, domestic domus the house uh, most fiction not all fiction but so much fiction right right back to greek tragedy it's it's all in the house or odysseus mm-hmm. from his from his Odyssey mm-hmm. coming back to find his wife still weaving and the suitors all there. That's domestic. That's the home, the half. Of course, there are the Robinson Crusoes and the adventure stories, and they're 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 really important. but most stories are kind of based around those fundamental human configurations. but of course, of course, of course, sometimes you know, if you've read the newspaper that morning and you are aware of some of the extremities happening in the world I, I i almost completely accept the challenge why are you writing here about you know a woman looking over her elder looking after her elderly, elderly mother in a relatively privileged situation where they have a, plenty to eat and nobody's trying to you know kick them out from the home and so on uh, yeah yeah that I, I think one should feel perpetually slightly on edge as to whether your subject matter justifies the art, mm-hmm. but in the end, there we are. It also you don't get a choice about what you write. That that's again <laughs> that's very much to continue from what we were talking about at the beginning. Finding your own home in writing, you don't get oh which house shall I live in? Shall I shall I write the sort of you know post colonial novel? Well that. In fact, I think that rather is what I was trying to do in those years of failing. I was reading Gordimer and Curtsy and of course thinking they were stunning, and wanting to write books like that. Well, that wasn't that wasn't what I knew about, so I couldn't.
0: Yeah, it yeah. seems
2: it does in other people's work. The 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 holding of the tiny and the parochial. Is I don't have doubts about that value, but I think one should hold the doubt about the value of what you're doing yourself. That's that's fine. It keeps you on edge and it's, it would stop you being complacent.
0: I, I actually, I was going to say, I think most of your work does, in a sense, take place against a larger backdrop. I mean, especially when you, you know you're writing about the 60s or the 70s. And there's always the, the kind of cultural, political context there. It's, it's unavoidable because it is part of, of daily life. Yeah. Well, I
2: love you saying that, and that's that's what I try. I kind of, I mean, I get. I think certainly in the UK, I, I I get described as writing about bourgeois life as much as about domestic life, and that's probably a slightly more stinging critique. And I'm, yeah, of course, I'm I'm aware of it. And sometimes I push when I feel like could. I push my terrain out a little bit. But in the end, that is what I know. And what interests me, there is a great tradition, especially a 20th century tradition of of British writing about the bourgeois domesticity. But for most of its duration, it was quite politically, hmm, you know, kind of elitist and privileged. I, you know, the, the writers I love best of all, like Elizabeth Bowen, you really don't want to know what she thought about grammar schools, you know, let alone <laughs> comprehensive education. Now, it's changed. And in my lifetime, that same bourgeoisie, obviously, it comes in every political shade, but somewhere, the one I know, and, and its majority, I think, is kind of conscientious anguish, definitely to the left, you know, and I, I, I don't mean I'm saying that that's I'm not talking about the virtue of that, but I felt no one had described that. And I thought it was a great subject. You know, the people with the political posters on their wall and the little joke I have in the news story where, you know, the the, the sort of rather well-off husband and his ghastly mother think they love the working classes. They just don't love his wife's dad, who's a you know right-wing old military man, who's definitely working class, but they don't like him. So uh, th- those sort of ironies and jokes of class and politics, as to how we are now, that seemed like in some ways a, a new subject that that has, of course, it has been written, but it hasn't been written, it hasn't been written as much.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tessa. This was really great. Ah,
2: lovely to talk to Deborah. Thank you.
3: Tessa Hadley's latest collection is called After the Funeral. You can hear Hadley read one of her short stories published in The New Yorker on our podcast, The Writer's Voice. Deborah Treisman is our fiction editor. And I'm David Remnick, and that's The New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
0: The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado and Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Brita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, Avery Keatley, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen and Emputubuele, with guidance from Emily Boteen and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Dequette. The New Yorker Radio
1: Hour is supported in part by the Cherena Endowment Fund.